what saves the miracle is the reuniting of a family. Nietzsche would not want to talk about Bruno. Yeah. He would have been fine with that. You know, the only thing he's really guilty of there probably is being a pessimist. René Girard says Christianity is the end of mythology. In order for the family to be reunited, Bruno has to come back. You have to bring Bruno back. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hey everyone! Welcome back to another episode of Unreliable Narrators, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Raymond Docapel. And before we get to the, the main subject of this episode, we have a listener question to answer that we got after our episode about the bridge over troubled water. What do you mean? Someone actually wrote to us? Someone wrote to us, Raymond. No <laughs> they way. They asked a question. And you, if you want to have your question answered on our podcast, you too can write us a question. So here's the question we got. Uh, our listener, Abby, says, Thank you for introducing me to Bridge Over Troubled Water in your last podcast episode. Unfortunately, I can't listen to the song, right now at least, without thinking, This helped break up a friendship, and also 90% of the lyrics are filler. And it made me wonder, what other art is just filler? Like, how many cantos of nothing Dante wrote just so every book could have 33? Wow. Really interesting question. Uh, Raymond, what do you think? I think that as an English major, I have come around to accepting the fact that there are just certain sections that are more interesting than others. And... By extension, certain sections that may be just better than others. Uh, and I think especially with someone like Dante, which you're you're so hesitant to criticize because you know that he's a genius and you know that there's so much there. So when you read it, probably assuming that you don't understand him and that he actually does have something to say is a safe assumption, probably like, I don't know, 80% of the time. And so I think that it's right to make that assumption, to tell people, yeah, maybe probably you don't really understand him yet, um, because it takes a lot of time and effort, I think, and a lot of expertise before you can get to the place where you can say, yeah, I don't think Dante was really up, up to snuff with this line. Yeah, I think the thing that I would add to that, so I've been listening to a podcast, an interesting podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And the whole idea of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, the podcast, is to read through the Harry Potter books and treat the Harry Potter books in the same way or with the same care and diligence that you would treat a sacred text. Not saying that it is a sacred text, but to think about each line as if it were important and necessary and needs to be here and has some deep meaning in the same way that you would like you don't think that any verse in the bible is filler right all the verses in the bible have some purpose for being there they are important in some way there's nothing in the bible that's filler i think we would all say so the purpose in this podcast of treating Harry Potter as sacred is not in actually saying that Harry Potter is sacred, but in saying what happens when we read a text and assume that all of this is important and every single word needs to be here. And they come up with some really, really interesting, important observations when they do that. So I think, Raymond, to your point, is there some stuff in every work of art that is maybe there to be filler? Yes. Is that especially true in pop songs? Probably. But I think there's a disconnect between the artist and then the the viewer of the art or the receiver of the art, where even if the artist meant one thing, that doesn't mean that there isn't meaning in the art, even where the author didn't think there was going to be as much meaning as there ends up being. So if you treat if you treat art as not filler, if you approach art with the assumption that it is not just filler, then you are going to get more out of it 
and it's going to be a better experience for you and you're going to appreciate the art more than if you assume, oh, this is probably just filler. Right. And going back to like the Bible or something, I think that there's a probably, in my opinion, humble opinion, there's a problem with uh, verbal plenary inspiration, which is every single word, and I mean every single word, had to be exactly what it was, um, or it wasn't the word of God. Um, I think that there are some verses like John 1.1, 1, 1, in, in RK, in Ha Logos, in the beginning was the word. I don't think you could really substitute those words for any other words. I think that that's really important and integral to understanding the Bible. However, there may be some places in in the Gospels in Matthew and John where, you know, Matthew uses the word walk when he could have used the word went. And you think, well, he, you know, if he used the word went instead of walk, does that mean that they would that they would uh, severely misunderstand the truth of the Bible? I think probably not. Uh so well, I it's think, especially a yeah. problem when we read the Bible in English. Like, if you're not reading the Bible in the original Greek, then if you think that the original words are that important, then you you're gonna run into some issues. Right? Yeah, I don't I don't understand why people are really pushing verbal plenary inspiration when they are reading a translation of the Bible. I just think it yeah. sense. Uh, but anyway, uh, back to her her original first comment was: I think I feel that. I'm distracted because it helped break up a friendship. Um, I kind of understand that. I understand how knowing that certain things can can often ruin our enjoyment of it. But I but I try not to let that happen. Um, I think that oftentimes those sort of contexts. I mean, if you knew everything about every single artist, then you'd have a reason to not want to listen to anybody. So yeah, um, it's probably a good good idea to find a way that we can can appreciate what was produced for what it means to us personally and the kind of stories that arise out of that. Yeah. TLDR, what the author meant or what the artist meant is a lot less important than what the words say. And that if you assume that there's meaning, there's going to be. Yeah. Thanks for writing, Abby. Thanks, Abby. With that, let's get on with the episode. What are we talking about today, Sophie? It's really more what we are not talking about today. Oh, okay. So what are we not talking about today? We don't talk about Bruno. <gasps> you said the thing. <laughs> you said it. You know what? I'm sure actually for for months now, this is probably what, the, really the elephant in the room that everyone has been uh, Waiting for us to really talk about this. I mean, you you can't help but notice that in every single podcast episode, we have been very slyly and carefully avoiding this subject <laughs> of Bruno of Bruno for an extremely long time. Yep. But um, today, the day has come. We finally decided we need to we need to talk about Bruno. Time to talk about Bruno. Yep. So we are, in fact, today discussing uh, Encanto. Which I believe, probably, of all the topics that we've talked about, probably the most people in our audience have seen Encanto because uh, it's pretty popular. The music is by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who obviously is a good musician and good lyricist, and the tunes are really catchy. It's a really entertaining story. Um, It's a Disney movie, and Disney is popular. So we're imagining that a lot of our audience has seen this film. Yeah, it's a really fun movie. When I watched it, I think that probably my first impression, my, well, my, my initial impression of this movie um, is that it doesn't really have a very clear focus to it. Yeah. Um, like, there are a lot of really good songs, but it's kind of difficult for us to, like, parse out what exactly is this movie about um, there, there seems to be a lot of different themes, and if you focus on one song, you would get a different theme out of it. Um, we know that it's, uh, we got kind of themes of like typical Disney magic about the idea of the magic of the house and the miracles and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, um, and and kind of this emphasis on the individual, somebody, the protagonist is always special, you know, um, in every Disney movie. Mm-hmm. But special in a way that is also not special, uh, yep. by by being by which I mean they're normal. So that's yep. the interesting thing about the plot of Disney movies. 
as is the case of this one, because um, the premise of this movie, Mirabelle living in a house of uh, the, of a magical a magical house full of of magical people. Everyone in her family has a special gift, and they're always special powers. Mm-hmm. You know, they have some these special powers um, that are um, that kind of make all of the background characters one dimensional. Yeah, and then and then there's Mirabelle, mm-hmm. and Mirabelle is just a normal person. Mm-hmm. Except she's abnormal in this society. Yeah. But that's like a very like common Disney thing is that like there's just one normal person uh, who's abnormal. And so that we can mm-hmm. all feel special for being normal. Yep. Because we can be the protagonists and in, in this we can imagine ourselves being the protagonists in a in a world full of really special people, but not really us. Yeah. Yeah. I think that in this movie I, I should start by saying that I did like it, and I'm entertained by it, and I appreciate the fact that it's about a family, it has strong family values, caring about your family and doing your duty for your family, all those things are important in this movie. I really appreciate that, I think that's good, I think it has some strong, good themes in it. Um, And I was really entertained, I thought that, I liked the characters, I liked Mirabelle as a character. Um, So in general, I have positive feelings about this movie. My first complaint about the movie, I think, alludes a little bit to something you were saying, Raymond, which is there is... The family is so big that it's really hard to introduce the audience to every single member of the family and have you have any sense of each person as a whole person who has lots of depth and dimension to them. The way that they try to introduce all of the family is through this first song, which is Mirabelle, who's our protagonist, introducing all the members of her family... And the song is called, I think, The Family Madrigal or something like that, which is a Colombian family um, living in sort of this magical oasis that has sprung up uh, from some sort of miracle that happened. And it's unclear at the beginning of the movie where exactly this miracle came from, um, except that the abuela, who's sort of the matriarch of the family, she is telling everyone that there's this miracle that is sustaining their their house and the place that they live. But then Mirabelle is the one who actually introduces us to her family, and she does it really quickly in this entertaining opening song, which is nice, like, it's a fun song to listen to, but you have to keep track of all of these names. There are... how many people? So there's the abuela, um, and then she has three kids, two of whom... Abuela is, like, the matriarch. Yeah, yeah yep. Of the, the grandma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there, she has three kids who are the adults, basically. <laughs> the kind of uh, middle-aged, parent-age people. And then they are, they're, two of them are married. Um, and then they have kids. And all those kids are like... Some of them are their, uh, Mirabelle's siblings. And then some of them are her cousins. And then she's got aunts and uncles and all that. And so, wait, wait, wait. So they have like three main children, right? Who are they? What are their special powers? Uh, Julieta, who is Mirabelle's mother... Um, her gift is making food that can heal people, I think. (laughs) Uh, and then Peppa, who she can, uh, make the weather change, but mostly really she, the weather just changes based on her emotions. (laughs) If she's angry, then there'll be like a storm cloud. And if she's happy, then it'll be bright and sunny and all that. Uh, and then the third child of Abuela is, uh, Bruno. Sophie! We don't talk about We're, Bruno. Okay. We, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. Um, and then Julieta's kids are uh, Isabella, who she's Mirabelle's older sister. She can make plants grow, um, flowers, things like that. Then Luisa, who is Mirabelle's the second oldest, um, her other sister. And Luisa is very strong. She has a whole solo in the middle of the movie that is arguably unconnected from everything else, but it's a great bop. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And then there's Mirabelle, who is the youngest of those kids. So Isabella, Luisa, and Mirabelle are um, all the kids of Julieta. Peppa has three kids. The oldest is Dolores, who can hear everything. She has, like, Superman hearing. Um, Camilo, who can shapeshift. Uh, so he can appear like whatever he wants to. And then Antonio, who is the youngest child in the family, he, in the very beginning of the movie, is has his gift ceremony where he gets his gift and it turns out that he can talk to animals um, and communicate with them. So that's the whole family. But in this opening song, the introduction to that family is really kind of hurried and 
haphazard and thrown together and it's kind of hard to get a picture of how everyone's related to everyone just based on the opening. Really, and you're not really, I don't think, meant to follow all of these people anyway. Yeah. Because the point is that Mirabelle doesn't have a gift. That's really right. the focus. <laughs> that's what this. we learn. That's what we learn mm-hmm. from the story. So Mirabelle, that's sort of the main issue at the beginning is that Mirabelle's part of this big family where everyone has a gift. Um, and there's this whole gift ceremony that happens when you're five, I think, on your fifth birthday. At 7 p.m., you go, you wear this white outfit, you go, you open your door that's built into this magical house, and then you receive your magical gift. And that's happened for every member of the family uh, since... Well, Abuela does also doesn't have a gift, but all of her children, all of her descendants do. Um, which is also interesting because everyone who marries into the family doesn't have a gift. You have to be related by blood to Abuela, which goes back, ties back to what we find out in the end about the miracle, which we don't know at the beginning. But, um, Mirabelle, when she has her gift ceremony, she touches the doorknob of her door. She does not receive a gift. Oh no. And she's sad about that. That's sort of one of, she's a really happy person. She loves her family. She supports them. But kind of the main sorrow of her life is that she was not given a gift and doesn't know why. Yeah. And, and there's not really any kind of, um, explanation for why Mm -hmm. she doesn't and this is where i think we get to something that is actually really interesting here and that is well i mean we're going to get to bruno Mm -hmm. eventually um and this idea that we don't talk about we don't talk about him but even before we get to bruno we there's another bruno there's another elephant in the room and the elephant of the room is that mirabelle doesn't have a gift yeah that's also a thing that people don't want to talk about Right. I think that's really interesting because in some sense, Mirabelle is actually another Bruno. Mm hmm. Yes. That Abuela. So as the matriarch, Abuela, she's a really interesting character because she wants everyone to be special and she takes pride in her family. But she also is kind of embarrassed by the fact that Mirabelle doesn't have a gift. And she kind of wants to sweep that under the rug. She kind of downplays Mirabelle. She doesn't really want Mirabelle to be seen as as much part of the family as everyone else. For example, one of the major conflicts of the film is Mirabelle's relationship with her older sister, Isabella, um, who is just known as Isa. And Isa is so perfect and that's her whole personality is that she's the perfect child she's doing what she's supposed to do she's going to marry the man she's supposed to marry so that she can grow the family um and she's really pretty and perfect and she makes flowers bloom and everyone loves her and that's in contrast to she's kind of the favorite of abuela in contrast to mirabelle who doesn't have a gift is kind of clumsy like every single disney heroine ever and she's not like isabella and that's sort of a conflict between them yeah yeah Okay, so how does Mirabelle discover Bruno? How does he come into the picture? Yeah, so we know that there's this miracle, and the miracle sustains the magic of their family and the magic of the house. And we find out pretty quickly in the movie that somehow the miracle is dying, which is actually probably my second complaint about the movie. What does that even mean? (laughs) It's never really explained. Um, It's just sort of a magical thing. There is a miracle. The miracle is dying. But we don't talk about it. See, that's the the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) We don't talk about what's going wrong here. (laughs) Yeah. And so Mirabelle is seeing things like there are these cracks in the house and there's this candle that kind of symbolizes the miracle like up in the window and the candle is sort of flickering and everything and Mirabelle goes, oh no, the miracle's dying. And the grandmother, Abuela, keeps saying, no, 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 the miracle's fine. The magic is strong. It's all okay. So Mirabelle disagrees. She thinks the miracle is dying, and so she sets out to save it, not really knowing how. So she starts doing some digging into their family history, and she starts asking questions about this cast-off uncle of hers who was cut out of the family tree, who is Bruno. That's the, um, the third child of Abuela and their deceased grandfather, Pedro. And uh, they, the family has this tacit agreement that nobody talks about Bruno. But then the ironic thing is everybody talks about Bruno and everybody has a story about Bruno. So when she starts asking questions about Bruno, um, everybody has something to say while saying we don't talk about Bruno. And it's a, that's a very human thing. I think that that song is like, 
Uh, it's not just catchy. It's also very relatable. Like when you mm-hmm. see it happening, you instantly understand what's going on here. I mean, because who doesn't have this kind of like weird thing in the corner out of the corner of their eye that they're they're fascinated and also terrified to talk about? Um, like we 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 know the the sort of emotion that's behind this. Like I can't tell you, and also I have to tell you. Right. That's why I, I love about it. And it's such a well-written song. You know, it's like, we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno, but. Mm-hmm. And then they launch right into it. And yes. you're like, yes, yes. Well, also the fact that they say, we don't talk about Bruno. There's no agent. There's no force that is requiring them not to talk about Bruno. Yeah. They're just saying, this is the understanding we all have. It's a collective group rule that we don't talk about Bruno. But also it's very clear that the collective group rule is we do talk about Bruno. We just talk about Bruno while we say we're not talking about Bruno. Um, Which, yeah, is very realistic. That is, I think, something that a lot of families probably can relate to. Uh, I want to say quickly about this song. Um, It's really fascinating. We were talking a little bit about this earlier, that this is the song that became the most popular song out of this film. It wasn't any of Mirabelle's solos. It wasn't the feel-good Disney finale. It wasn't Surface Pressure, which is the Louisa uh, Pressure is Getting to Me song. It's this song, which is a um, an ensemble, counterpoint, like, one day more sort of piece. Mm-hmm. And that's the song that became, like, the next Let It Go. It was so popular coming out of this movie, uh, which is really fascinating to me. It's really fascinating for... A lot of reasons. One of the reasons is that, like, it's actually seems to be the opposite message of Let It Go. Yeah. And it's even more popular than Let It Go. It's not Let It Go, it's Hold It In. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it's just because it's a great bop. Um, I think that also it's, it's, it, it's deeper than Let It Go in the sense that there is a real, like, cultural reality behind the song that's being written here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that of all the things that are being represented of, like, Latin American culture in this movie, I think that this song represents it the best. This is the best accurate representation of an actual phenomenon that, you know, uh, 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 Colombian or Latin American Hispanic families might experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And Lin-Manuel Miranda is Puerto Rican, so he's definitely proxy to these sort of things. And so uh, uh, he's writing about, he's drawing from like kind of like a real cultural experience that he has. Yeah. So if we look through the the song itself, we start, you, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but the fact that they start by saying, because Mirabel asks about Bruno and they sort of launch in this song. There's no like piano intro. There's no musical introduction. It's just immediately, we don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. Yeah. And they say, we don't talk about Bruno again. And then they say, but, and then they start telling the first story about Bruno. And this song is basically just all the family members giving their different perspectives on Bruno, all of which are negative and all of which give sort of a different picture of who Bruno is who is, of course, this character that we haven't met and we're not going to meet for a little bit here. Um, So the first story about Bruno in this first verse is Felix and Peppa. Uh, Peppa, who is, just to remind everyone, the daughter of Abuela, and then Felix is her husband. And Peppa is the one who makes the weather change. So they tell this story, which is the day they were getting married, um, when Bruno was still around, so Bruno had not been cut out yet. They were getting ready and... It was going to be an outdoor wedding. And then they say Bruno walks in with a mischievous grin. And he says, oh, it looks like rain. Um, And then Peppa gets so worried about the fact that Bruno said, oh, it's going to be raining, that she makes it rain. And so they get, quote, married in a hurricane. (laughs) It's so, so ironic. And it's so funny. I mean, like, very clearly that there's a there's an element of subjectivity here Mm -hmm. going on. And. And there is something strange about, like, whether Bruno actually does have these powers or not. Like, maybe... And see, that's why I think... Here's, like, the real mystery, I think, underneath this of the fact that maybe Mirabelle is Bruno, the person that you don't talk about. That maybe Bruno is just ostracized because he didn't have a gift like Mirabelle didn't. I'm just theorizing here. I mean, like, I don't know if this is really... I feel like the Disney writers could have 
done gone farther with this idea mm-hmm. than they did. Um, but I think that they were on to something here yeah. that they could have taken farther. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there is some sense or implication here that Bruno doesn't actually have any really powers. Like maybe he actually can't really predict the future. Mm-hmm. Um, he just, you know, he said some things and, you know, uh, people freaked out about it. And then that kind of caused the prophecy to take place. And then it just kind of snowballed and mm-hmm. that kind of became his career. And, and it, it just started working because everyone agreed or believed that he had that power. Yeah. And it's the only real evidence that we get throughout the movie that he has the power of prophecy is he does have this moment. He um, had a prophecy about Mirabelle that Mirabelle was going to be the one to either save or destroy the miracle. That she has like kind of a double fate that she can make a choice um, and do one or one of those two things. And that's really what causes him to cut himself out of the family because he wants to protect Mirabelle. So it turns out that Bruno kind of hid and left the family on his own because he was protecting Mirabelle from that prophecy. He didn't want people to know about that prophecy. Um, We're just getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but the only evidence that we have that he actually has prophetic powers is that prophecy because that turns out to be true. Um, But I think you're right that they, the writers could have gone more in that direction even and kind of had this more ambiguity about whether or not he really has the power of prophecy or he just kind of says stuff and people do it. Right, right. Well, we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Let's not, let's keep on going through the song here. So like, what else do we, what else can we, what do do we find here about Bruno? Uh, So after that first verse about the hurricane, um, we have Dolores, who is the one who can hear everything. She describes him in terms of what she could hear. She says that he always left Abuela and the family fumbling, grappling with prophecies they couldn't understand. So the kind of a big picture idea of what Bruno is doing that is upsetting the family is that he is making prophecies. They're not understanding them. That's making everyone upset. Um, And Dolores also is describing an actual memory of Bruno, right? She actually experienced Bruno as a person. Um, But then the next verse is Camilo who is the probably, like, 14, 15-year-old, maybe, son of uh, Peppa and Felix. And his description of Bruno is 100% mythological. He has never actually met Bruno. But he says, uh, seven-foot frame rats along his back. When he calls your name, it all fades to black. He sees your dreams and feasts on your screams. Which is describing this monster, right? And when we do meet Bruno, he's not seven feet tall and there aren't rats along his back and it doesn't make any sense to make this weird description of him. But that's the mythology that's been passed down to the younger generation from those who actually do remember Bruno, even though it's not true. Right, yeah. And um, so that also, again, like that's like a very, very common thing to happen. Like one person gets ostracized, the older people know what happened. And then as it passed down, the person becomes more and more like 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 a myth. Um, and then we get to, I think this is a really interesting turn in the song. You know, this keeps on escalating about all the things that he keeps on making these prophecies and they keep on turning true. And they're always bad. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing that I think is just like so strange. And it really, it really blows my mind what is going on here. Because all of a sudden it changes, right? Mm-hmm. And we have, uh, what's her name? Uh, the... The successful girl. Uh, Isa. Isa. Isa comes out of nowhere. And the song, the whole tone of the song changes. And she says, he told me that my... Uh, the life of my the dreams. The life of my dreams would be promised and someday be mine. He told me that my power would grow like the grapes that thrive on the vine. And what's so interesting about that is that how quickly, just out of nowhere, the whole tone of the song just changes. Yeah. And Isa is the only person who, for whom Bruno reported something good. Yeah, positive prophecy. Positive pro- prophecy. And it just, like, is just sitting there in the midst of all of these other negative prophecies about mm-hmm. about him. So, like, what's going on there? Like, you, you know, uh, and what do, you, what do you think Isa's attitude towards Bruno is? Like, is, would she have the same attitude of, like, not wanting to talk about Bruno? 
um, because of this reason? Why is that? I mean, Issa is a she's not a child, right? She's a, about to or presumably about to get married. She's hoping to get engaged to this guy in town, but she also didn't presumably know Bruno. Although it's possible that she did, because Dolores did, and Dolores and Issa are around the same age, so maybe she did know Bruno. Actually, no, she had to, because she says he told me. Okay, so never mind, she did. Um, But she, I think, just follows all of the family dictates. Like, whatever the family is doing, she does, because she's, like, the poster child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She does exactly what she's supposed to do. And so, if the family rule is we don't talk about Bruno, it seems like... She doesn't talk about Bruno, but she also doesn't really have a personal reason not to talk about Bruno because what he told her was good. Well, see, I'm not so sure about that. Like, this is, I mean, in in the way the way I'm, like, looking at, like, my, the interpretation of, like, the idea of the taboo here, um, I'm not sure if she doesn't have a personal investment in it. Because when you think about, like, the cultural idea of the taboo or, like, even... You know, in in, in 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 our culture where we we call it jinxing, right? You don't mm-hmm. jinx it. It's it goes both ways, right? You don't want to say something negative mm-hmm. because that might it, happen. It, it might happen, but you also don't want to say something positive. Yeah, people will say, you know, like this. It's going to be fine. You know, don't jinx it, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like this this idea of the taboo, like whether it's good or whether it's bad, you still don't talk about it. Yeah. And like, um, and that's part of what gives t- the taboo or gives Bruno his power. I I do think Isa has a personal investment in also not talking about him, because not talking about him is also part of what makes her the positive prophecy true. Yeah. So when we get to the ending of this song. Um, they're all getting ready. It's sort of a transition song because they're uh, transitioning to the next scene, which is that uh, Isabella is going to hopefully get proposed to by this guy in town, who, interestingly, she doesn't actually like all that much. She's just wanting to marry him for the sake of her family, but we don't know this at this point. Um, We just get a hint of the fact that Dolores, who is around Issa's age, is actually, actually likes this guy, and Issa really doesn't. And they're at the end of this song getting ready for this dinner where there's going to be this proposal, presumably. And Mirabelle is all, like, thinking about Bruno and knowing maybe that there was this prophecy about her and not wanting to wanting to tell people but knowing that she probably shouldn't because she's supposed to wait for this dinner to happen so that Issa can get proposed to. And so the ending, all of everybody's melodies about singing about Bruno comes back and there's this really cool counterpoint uh, where they're all saying we don't talk about Bruno, but they're all talking about Bruno at the same time. Yeah. And so to kind of go back to, you know, like what, what, what Lin-Manuel Miranda is drawing from with this with this story, I think that this song is really worth focusing on uh, because in Latin American culture, we have this very real um, idea of of the taboo, which is being accurately represented here. But also, this is something that you we find in every single culture mm-hmm. that we go to. Is there some there's this idea of the taboo? It goes all the way back to like in Jewish culture, we had you know the ineffable name of Yahweh, um, who wasn't like a, that wasn't a bad person. It was just a word that you didn't say, yeah. right? But there's all sorts of taboos like that. So what is going on there with this idea of the taboo? Because in our culture, we believe we're beyond superstition. You know, these are like indigenous or whatever. This is like less advanced or we have this kind of cultural superiority that we don't have this. But we totally believe this. Mm-hmm. We totally believe this all the time. Um, that saying something, talking about this thing can have special uh, special powers to it. And... Latin American culture does this in a certain way, mm-hmm. right? That's different from other ways. They have a different style, and this is the style in which that that idea of the taboo is represented. Mm-hmm. So, why do you think that is? Um, this is sort of punting the question, but this is just an example I thought of while you were talking, which is that um, in the Harry Potter series, there's a really huge example of this. 
which is that uh, Voldemort, the villain, he who is must... only known as he who must not be named. And they have to say either he who must not be named or you know who. Um, nobody's supposed to say his name, and everyone freaks out if you say his name, as if that's going to, like, summon him because he's become, like, this mythological evil figure. Um, and Dumbledore is the only one brave enough to say his name. And then Harry also is the one who, from the very beginning, is able to say his name. But the interesting thing is there's a difference there because Dumbledore can say the name because he's just that. He's the only one that Voldemort ever feared. Whereas Harry just didn't grow up in the wizarding world, so he doesn't know that Voldemort is... That he shouldn't say Voldemort. He doesn't have any sort of, like, growing up with that perception of him. Well, actually, also, there is something interesting about that because even once he learns that Voldemort is taboo, he still says it. In fact, he, uh, I think at a certain point, he starts just saying it to be offensive. Voldemort, yeah. Voldemort, Voldemort. And I think that also is what sets him apart as the protagonist. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what kind of makes him, like, the brave Gryffindor type. Yeah. That makes him, like he's the hero of the story is that he's got the guts to say that the thing that nobody else says. Um, and that's also what makes Mirabelle the protagonist, right? Mm-hmm. Mirabelle's the protagonist because she's the one who investigates or talks about the thing that, that isn't, that shouldn't be talked about. And also maybe the implica- implication is, is that that's kind of what her gift is, mm-hmm. right? She's the investigator. Um, she sees that the miracle is dying. Nobody talks about it. She finds out this thing about Bruno that nobody's talking about. And she's the one who drives the plot forward for that reason. And so what's interesting is that at the end of the movie, we never talk. We don't talk about Mirabelle's gift. Like, we never decide what exactly is her miracle that she de- uh, is, 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 um, that, that she's been bestowed. And so... I think that maybe maybe the the Disney writers are actually more clever than we're giving them credit for. Like maybe that was actually intentional. Yeah. Um, the fact that she talks about the things that nobody talks about, which is what makes her different. And at the end of the story, um, nobody talks about the thing that makes her different, and yet she has somehow come to some sort of conclusion that she knows what her gift is, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, Although, one thing I'll say, I, I'm not sure how this works. It feels a little bit like an inconsistency to me. Because when Mirabelle wants to know about Bruno, and so she's talking to all of these family members who are able to tell her something, lots of the family members that she's talking to aren't that much older than her. And yet Mirabelle somehow has just never heard about Bruno. Like, she's never heard these stories. Nobody seems super tight-lipped about it, right? They all kind of want to talk about Bruno. Even Camilo, who's the... 15-year-old, I think, who's, like, um, he's younger. He's younger than Mirabelle. But even he has wacky stories about Bruno that probably he's heard from his mom. Um, But Mirabelle doesn't, somehow. Like, how is Mirabelle the only person who hasn't heard about Bruno when clearly they love to talk about Bruno? I don't know. Maybe that's just sloppy writing. Yeah. (laughs) That could be. Might be. The case there. Yeah. What really struck me about this this idea of the taboo, I got really interested in this. And I came across this French philosopher is by the name of René Girard. And um, he he is an anthropologist and he, he's a Catholic. He he's read, he's he taught at Stanford University for a long time, uh, recently passed away. And he came up with this this theory of what he called the scapegoat. I mean, he was drawing from the biblical narratives of he was investigating human cultures for, for, before the time of Christ and talking about the relationship between mythologies and the mythological structure of the Gospels. And what he found, at least this is what his theory is, is that, you know, every single pagan culture or culture prior to the time of Christ always had some kind of killing of a scapegoat. And you can understand why that happens, right? We have conflict. We don't know what the source of the conflict is. We have to blame somebody for that conflict. So we pin all that conflict on that person. That person represents everything that's wrong. We kill that person and then we're appeased. Um, except what Rene Girard says is that 
in order for that to work, we have to deliberately pull the wool over our own eyes, mm-hmm. quite literally. We have to convince ourselves that that person is really guilty. Um, but what happens afterwards, and this is what happens in pagan cultures, is that once you kill the victim, that person becomes sacred. Why? Because, well, you've killed that person and that person has appeased all of the conflicts. And then by proxy, if that person appeases all the conflicts, then actually, ironically, paradoxically, he is also the cause of the salvation of the group. So you kill the person, you convince that person is guilty, you kill the person, everyone's happy, then that person becomes a god. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what C.S. Lewis was talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Until we have faces, is that there's this character, Psyche, um, whom everyone is convinced is guilty. You know, they sacrifice her to the god of the mountain, and then the the crowd is appeased, and Psyche becomes a god. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what Lewis's whole like message about mythology was. Okay, so. What Rene Girard says, and he brings up the example of um, the the Babylonian myth of Marduk and Tiamat. Mm-hmm. In the ancient Babylon, Babylonian myth of the world, the god Marduk defeats Tiamat, the goddess of the salt water, splits her body, places half of, it, half of it over the sky and half of it under the earth. He kills Tiamat's consort, Kingu, and makes human beings out of his blood. This sounds like something that only happened in the realm of the gods, distant from humankind. But what if the original victims were human and came to be known as gods? This is what happened, according to Gerard. So what Gerard is saying is that all mythologies have this um, myth of the victim, of, 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 of something, of civilization being founded on blood, right? Mm-hmm. Like... Romulus kills Remus and builds Rome, right? Cain kills Abel and then goes builds a city. So our our civilization, our house, right? Our magic house Mm -hmm. is built on blood. There's something that we're standing on. um, And that's the story of every single civilization. Uh, But what Gerard says is that, okay, actually, these mythologies... There was a real person behind them. Mm-hmm. We actually killed somebody. Um, so maybe when Gar- Marduk murdered Tiamat, you know, there was actually a real murder that took place. Yeah. Um, it's not just folk legend. And then that became mythologized and then became the, the our, our founding or religious story. And so, like, that's exactly... What ha- what's happening in, um, in We Don't Talk About Bruno is that people push Bruno under the carpet, and then later generations come after him and they mythologize him. Mm-hmm. And people are like, Raymond, you're like wait, thinking way too much into this Disney song. But I don't think I am. <laughs> I don't think I am because, because Lin-Manuel Miranda is actually drawing from a real cultural phenomenon based in this culture of the taboo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's plausible to me. Uh, the one the one question I have, though, is that Bruno obviously isn't actually killed. And the one question I have is that he, what we learn eventually, I mentioned earlier, is that he, he put himself into hiding. <laughs> he removed himself from the equation. And it actually wasn't because everyone had problems with him. Because everybody had conflict with Bruno because he had all these negative prophecies about everybody. But then the thing that really made him withdraw himself was that he discovered this prophecy about Mirabel, And he didn't want to say the prophecy about Mirabel because he was afraid of what would happen, of what they would do to Mirabel. So he withdrew himself. He cut himself out of the family tree. And now they don't talk about him. So it's really, it seems like more of a, if we're talking about sacrifice, it's a self-sacrifice, not like the group sacrificing a victim. And do we ever figure out like what, the prophecy about Mirabelle was? Yes. The prophecy about Mirabelle is that she either is going to save the miracle or destroy it. It's, there's a double fate. It's it's very um, abstract. It's We don't know how that's going to happen. Mm. But he also stopped the prophecy before he saw the whole thing. So part of what happens is when Mirabelle meets Bruno, 
And she says, I want to see the whole prophecy. And he's like, no, you don't. Everybody hates me when they see the whole prophecy. And she says, I won't. And so he says, okay. And so he finishes the prophecy. And the conclusion of the prophecy is that in order to save the Mirabelle, or sorry, in order to save the miracle, she has to, like, hug Isabella, (laughs) which (laughs) is kind of dumb, but whatever. Spoiler alert. The way she saves the miracle is that she reconciles all her family members. She reconciles with her abuela and she reconciles with Isa and everybody is in harmony with one another. And Bruno is back and that unites the family again and that's what saves the miracle is being united. Um, but yeah, that that was the prophecy that caused him to draw withdraw himself. Right, right. And it's interesting that, that Bruno actually is... Um, when we hear his side of the story, you know, he's actually more of a heroic figure, mm-hmm. you know, and the thing kind of turns around. And this is where we get to the really interesting thing about Rene, what Rene Girard's theory was about the scapegoat. Um, and of course, what he's saying is not like, you know, revolutionary. It's just he's saying it in sort of like a different way, which is why I find him really interesting mm-hmm. is that he says it in a sort of a surprising way that I hadn't thought about it before. And it's very abstract, and I feel like, but we have to be abstract because we're. This is an abstract movie. Yeah. So, um, what happens? What is Gerard's theory? So, what Gerard said is that previous mythologies, when there was a killing of a victim, right, um, the crowd is always convinced that the victim is guilty, mm-hmm. um, because they have to in order for the 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 magic the the miracle the taboo to work you have to not really pay too close attention to the victim you can't mm-hmm. really look at it like Oscar Wilde you can't have an unbecoming thought mm-hmm. right you don't want to think about it too much um, or else you won't be able to be convinced that this person is really guilty and if you're not really convinced that person is guilty then they can't be the scapegoat you can't kill them in the stead and have them substitute for your sins right um, so that person is actually innocent, but we don't know that yet. Mm-hmm. And that's what the gospel narratives did, which totally changed the way we think about myth. So Rene Girard says Christianity is the end of mythology. What does he mean by that? He means that the, the gospel narratives have the same mythological structure of killing of the innocent victim. The difference is is that in Christianity, the victim is innocent. Mm -hmm. The story is told from the perspective of the victim, Jesus, and he is actually a spotless and innocent victim. Mm -hmm. And then he came back from the grave after he was killed. He died and he lived to tell the tale. And now he can be a witness to the fact that that he was innocent. Yeah. Um, And so what he says, what Gerard says is that that really has a much deeper effect on our culture than we ourselves realize. Mm-hmm. We think about myths differently now. And we know this is actually really like culturally relevant now. This has come to the point where we have, as a culture, have become obsessed with, with victims mm-hmm. um, and, and victimhood culture. It's like, where does that come from? It comes from the fact that our morality for what is right and wrong has changed. Um, we have to now think about um, uh, 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 the person who was persecuted. Yeah. And even, and, and which is, I think is so interesting is that even though a lot of this discussion about uh, uh, victimhood culture or victimization is coming from more liberal leaning direction that seems to usually have a very anti-Christian uh, 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 sentiment to mm-hmm. it is is ultimately being drawn from Christian morality, and so Jesus becomes a scapegoat once again. You know, mm-hmm. which I think is so interesting. I mean, Nietzsche said God is dead, and we have killed him, um, but he left out the part that Jesus came back from the dead. Yeah, so. right, right. And that's what we do. We kill him. That's what I mean. That's God comes. We kill him. Like mm-hmm. that's that's what happens. Um, and so we have this story of of Bruno, who is this innocent victim. The change of the narrative. Mm-hmm. We look now from the perspective of Bruno, 
not from the perspective of the crowd, not from the perspective of the house, the civilization who puts him to the to a side. And now we hear his side of the story. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that helps me to buy that I wasn't totally on board at the beginning because Bruno, it seemed to me, isn't sacrificed because because he's the one who cuts himself out, right? Because they don't cut him out. He does it to himself. Um, but I think that I can see how not talking about Bruno, not telling Bruno's story after he's withdrawn himself is a kind of sacrifice. Or as much of a sacrifice as we're going to get in a Disney movie, right? Mm-hmm. That you're going to eliminate the memory of this person or try to, and that that's some kind of sacrifice um, of an innocent victim. And also I think that the self-sacrifice component is hard to ignore, that Bruno erases his own memory in order to try and protect his niece, uh, Mirabelle. So he really is innocent. And also, I mean, if you look at the stories, like the, the wedding story, he says it looks like rain. You know, the only thing he's really guilty of there probably is being a pessimist, right? He says, oh, it looks like rain. Or maybe it really does look like rain, but it probably doesn't because they say there's no clouds in the sky, right? So maybe he's a pessimist and he says it looks like rain and then that causes something bad to happen. And what's he guilty of? Not much, right? Um, He just made a comment, but now it inadvertently caused all of this bad stuff to happen. Um, Or telling Dolores that the man of her dreams is going to be just out of reach. That turns out not to be true, right? She ends up with Mariano, so it's not... He, like, isn't even prophesying correctly, but it ruins her life because she thinks that this is going to happen now because he tells his story. So, like, he's not really all that guilty, so I think I can also buy the idea of Bruno as an innocent victim. Yeah, and so I we've been talking about, like, Christological figures, right? Mm-hmm. And it, I, I've always had a difficult time, like, understanding exactly what a Christological figure is. Mm-hmm. You know, like, we talked about, like, Peter, Peter Parker, is he a Christological figure? Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Like, what's a Christological figure? Chris, uh, 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 Bruno, is he a Christological figure? I, I don't know if I would say that. But I think that when you look at the plot, it's a Christological shift. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a Christological phenomenon because we go from looking, uh, taking, looking at a person and being convinced that person is guilty and then switching around and seeing as the person being accused mm-hmm. and saying that he's innocent. Right. And that's what that's what the word Satan means, by the way. Right. That's he's the accuser. Yeah. And Satan is defeated. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, that's, I think, the the really fascinating thing about, you know, reading G- Rene Girard that really made me think um, is that one of the things he emphasizes is that Satan has no real being. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Satan is the group. Yeah. Accusing something. Yeah. Accusing a person. So it's, but Satan is, it's not like Satan doesn't have to be defeated. Satan does have to be defeated. Yeah. But how is Satan defeated? It's by shifting our perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also, because the end of the movie, we talked a little bit about this earlier, that what saves the miracle is the reuniting of a family. Um, and all components of that reunification, I think, are necessary for the miracle to be saved. Because there are really three things that happen, right? Mirabelle reconciles with her sister Issa, with whom she has conflict because of the fact that Issa is so perfect and does everything she's supposed to do, and Mirabelle doesn't, and she doesn't have a gift, and she's not perfect. Um, And she convinces Issa to be more herself and to sort of break out of the mold that she's been uh, stuck into, and that reconciles her with Issa. But that doesn't solve anything because the family's not totally reunited yet. And then the second thing that needs to happen is she uh, reconciles with her abuela, with her grandmother, who the conflict between them is that um, the abuela is so uptight and wanting everyone to be the way that they she wants them to be. But it's really because she's afraid, because she had this really deep, tragic loss in her own life, and so she needs everything to be perfect now. Um, and they're able to reconcile. But then really, Bruno coming back is kind of the third component of that, right? Because that's what started this whole shift in the story. That's what started us being able to save this miracle. And it's also the conclusion of it, because in order for the family to be reunited, for everyone to be together and for the miracle to be saved, Bruno has to come back. 
You have to bring Bruno back. And that, I think, is the big thing that Mirabelle does that nobody else is willing to do, right? They're all willing to accept that Bruno is just gone now, which is kind of a terrible thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. He's their, their brother and uncle and son, and he's part of their family, and he removed himself, and nobody goes looking for him. Like, nobody's going <laughs> to try and save Bruno. And right, Mirabelle's because... the one who's willing to bring Bruno back. Yeah, yeah, right. And so, and that's the insistence of, like, for some reason, we have to make sure that one person stays in the shadows so mm -hmm. that our civilization can thrive. Yeah. Because Cain slew Abel and the blood of your brother cries out from the ground. Mm-hmm. But then he doesn't, right? Bruno doesn't stay dead. Bruno Bruno's doesn't brought stay back. Yeah. Bruno is resurrected um, in a weird way, which... It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. And you know what you were kind of like talking about before about like, you know, this, you, she has to hug her sister. This is kind of silly. Yeah. Like, we're looking at this story and being like, we're, we, we're like almost afraid to like read too much into it. Right. Because we don't, we're, we're, we're like, you know, this isn't, this isn't that deep or something. It's just a Disney movie or something. But also like, isn't that kind of like the point of what Paul was doing on Mars Hill, mm -hmm. right? That what we're doing here when we have these kinds of discussions is we are not here to talk about what is great art yeah. or what is gr not uh, not great art. In fact, sometimes bad art is the ones that is the one that is more interesting to talk about. Yeah. Um, because they accidentally say things yeah. that are actually like really interesting. What's the story behind the story? What's being hidden? Yeah. And it's a little bit easier. I think what makes it easier to take Encanto seriously for me is the fact that Lin-Manuel Miranda is writing the songs. Obviously, he didn't write the movie, um, but he tends to think pretty deeply and he has a really strong mythological classical background. So it makes it a little easier to believe that he would write that sort of thing in. Um, but one thing I want to talk about, speaking of Lin-Manuel Miranda and his songs, is the final song, which is... Uh, they say, because there's this whole idea of the miracle throughout the thread of the whole movie, and then the last song, the refrain that's repeated over it is, the miracle is you, all of you. And the first time I saw it, well, maybe not the first time I saw it, because I actually was, I was pretty entertained and I liked the ending. Mm -hmm. But then subsequent times that I saw the movie or thought about it, I was like, well, is this just like a feel-good Disney ending? We don't really know what the miracle is. Mm -hmm. We're unwilling to accept that it's supernatural in some way. And so we're just going to say, oh, well, it's all of you. All of you are the miracle. And that's just a feel-good Disney ending. Or is there some kind of depth or meaning to it? Yeah. Um, it also makes me think of, like, the ending of Kung Fu Panda, right? The the Dragon Warrior. Like, what's the the, sec the secret ingredient, the yes. special power? And it's, it's just a mirror, you. And it's just you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's a pretty hackneyed story. But also a very old story. It's, it is so supposed to be a sort of, like, epiphany, I mm -hmm. guess. You know, the thing that you were looking for is has been with you all along. Mm -hmm. So where does that come from? Like, is, is that actually true? Well, I think how it relates to the story, at least, is that Mirabelle... We talked a little bit earlier about the fact that Mirabelle doesn't have a gift in the beginning and she never gets a gift. She ends the story with no gift. And I think we're maybe sort of supposed to read the ending as ushering in a new era of the family or a new time in which have whether you have a gift or don't have a gift is kind of unimportant. Maybe you get one and maybe you don't, but you are not less valuable or less important whether or not you have like a superpower, um, which is a really American idea, the idea of absolute equality, right? Everyone is just exactly equally important regardless of what their gift is or whether or not they have a gift. But I think there's also something true to that, right? That Mirabelle is valuable because she's a person and because she's part of the family, whether or not she has a gift. Whereas the trap that Abuela is falling into throughout the movie is thinking that what you do is what makes you valuable or contributing to the family. And that's why all her kids have this kind of um, pressure to do really well to make themselves uh, valuable to the family because they think that it's what they do, that they're loved because of their actions, because of what they're able to accomplish, or because of their gifts. Whereas I think what Mirabelle ultimately makes her grandmother see 
is that she needs to be valuable and the family members need to be valuable just because they are family, not because of anything that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that you bring up like this being kind of indicative of like American culture in general um, being sort of ridiculous and also maybe partly true Mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, But also, I mean, like that goes back to the whole like, you know, discussion of victims, uh, victimhood narratives that we have now. Um, Probably I'm not going to go into specific examples because we don't talk about them. (laughs) Um, But I think that the problem with the victimhood culture um, and cancel culture, by the way, this is definitely like about cancel culture, you know, this song, um, is that the idea of telling the story from the perspective of the victim, because everybody's important, everyone's sovereign, the least of these is the most important, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, Mm -hmm. something shall be elevated, like there is something true about that. So why does it become so problematic in the way that we talk about it now in the way we talk about, like, you know, American culture, the sovereignty of the individual and victimhood culture? Like, why is it why is it not working? <laughs> you know, why is this incantation not working? I mean, like, this is what Nietzsche's whole like beef with Christianity was, was that this this uh, sympathy with the victim, which he just could not accept. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, he could not accept the fact, and that's we wanted to go back to the old paganism, actually, the will yeah. to power, where the strong people are the right people, and if you're weak, you're just weak, you know, and yeah. maybe, and maybe we should just leave it at that. So maybe we should just like Nietzsche would not want to talk about Bruno. Yeah, he would have been fine with that. <laughs> he would have fine. <laughs> we leave Bruno out. <laughs> leave Bruno alone. He was weak, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So, I think that. Really what it comes down to is, like, who is actually the innocent victim and who is not. Yeah. Right. And the only one who can be an innocent victim is Jesus. But there are imitators of Jesus because Satan dresses as an angel of light. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are people, I think that in order, in our society, in order for you to actually, like, claim to be moral or good in some way... You have to subscribe to this set of moral precepts, which is that I am somehow an innocent victim. I am somehow a martyr. I'm standing for something good and people are persecuting me for that. Yeah. I mean, like, that's just the the whole structure of our conversation. The unspoken assumption is that in order to actually elevate my authority, I have to be persecuted. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I think there's kind of a push and pull there, too, because you were talking about cancel culture. And the thing about cancel culture, I think, is that there is a point on both sides um, where... So, for example, if someone says something really intensely problematic... Um, for ex- Actually, here's a good example. So, Doug Wilson, who is really, really important in the whole classical school movement... Yeah. Um. And he's, you know, he's done some good things for the classical school movement. He also has this incredibly problematic view where he believes that race-based slavery in the United States was actually pretty great (laughs) and that it was based on mutual affection. And it's all this stuff that historically there's absolutely no grounding for. None of it's true. Um, It's really kind of a gross, I would say, kind of evil opinion to have. Um, That doesn't negate the fact that he's done good things for the classical education movement, um, that he's done some good things, but also that doesn't mean that we should apologize for the really terrible opinion. Um, and I think there are lots of people who, when they're called out for saying something wrong, getting really defensive and saying, oh, this is cancel culture. You can't cancel me for saying something. Whereas, you know, actually maybe you should get called out (laughs) if you say something that's just completely wrong or something that is a bad opinion to have, and maybe you should, like, be held accountable for the things that you say. Um, but at the same time, you shouldn't... Maybe, maybe we need to view people complexly <laughs> and view the the good things that they say and they do alongside the bad things that they say and do, and that both of those things are true, and that l- the world isn't divided into victims and persecutors. <laughs> right, and well, maybe, like, um, our, 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 we are so... Our, our willingness 
to jump on somebody who says something out of line yeah. or says something like shocking or controversial and to cancel them, I think is indicative or reveals our inherent desire to have somebody who's going to take on our sins, right? Yeah. And I think that people like these controversial persons like Doug Wilson, for example, may actually sort of invite that sort of uh that, that, that sort of persecution because maybe he could actually he could he could he could fit the bill, right? Yeah. He's done all these great things and then also says these things, these problematic things. Right. So maybe he could he could he could be that person who's like, you know, a hero figure and also, you know, a, a, an accursed figure. Yeah. An extremely polarizing person. Yeah. Very, very uh, strange stuff. Still kind of turning it over. I mean, I feel like we talked about Bruno for an hour, but we still haven't quite figured out um, what, what Bruno is yeah. up to. We'd love to have Bruno on the podcast. <laughs> if you'd like to come in. Represent himself. Mm-hmm. Talk about himself. Fine. Get to the bottom of this, you know. Keep talking about Bruno. Yeah. Keep talking about Bruno, folks. <laughs> You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or write to us at unreliablenarratorstoa at gmail.com. This podcast is produced by Raymond Okapil and Sophie Klomparent, and our theme song is New Moon by Caleb Klomparent. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Everything I Wanted by Billie Eilish. Until then, friends, write to us and let us know what you want us to not talk about next. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide